if you have a good relationship with your realtor and they know how you work and how things that they do make it important for you to choose them because they're that expert for selling houses, then the relationship is good and they can pretty much do it on their own without you being there. But really staging it, getting the marketing in place, the sooner the better so you can get more people interested in it. Um, once it's there, start blasting it off too. Like even though realtors are doing their work, you should be out there doing it and helping them. Hey investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Hey there, investment community. This is Garrett Wong, your host of the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mark Ting, who actually uh, gave me a bit of a bio that I'm going to read out to you here because I can't do him justice. So here we go. Mark Ting is a real estate entrepreneur with seven years of experience in owning, operating, and syndicating joint venture real estate projects. He specializes in buy-and-hold rental properties and flipping single-family houses within Manitoba. He is a firm believer that your network is your net worth. He has joined private masterminds and real estate investor groups all over the country. During his free time, he loves to ride his motorcycle, travel in new places, and serve his community in any way possible. His five-year goal is to achieve financial independence to retire him and his wife early and raise their family somewhere in a warm climate all year round. Mark is also a competitive pistol shooter and will be attending the 2022 Handgun World Shoot in Thailand this coming November. And his favorite motto in life, Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. This is a really, really cool episode. Uh, Mark and I go into a lot of things, but mainly concentrating on his passion, which is flipping. Um, hope you guys enjoy the podcast and give a listen. Okay, welcome to the podcast. Today, I have a good friend and co-conspirator, Mark Ting, on the line here, and we're going to be hanging out, talking for about half hour, 45 minutes. Mark, how are you? I'm good. How's everyone today? Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, my honor. Been meaning to have you on for a while and uh, really super excited to uh, get going here and hear what you have to share with our investor community. Let's just start with the basics. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, what's your story? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll, I'll try not to make it too boring for everybody, but, you know, like typical, uh, I was brought up in a middle class family. Uh, both of my parents are, they worked in a medical laboratory growing up. Um, I guess at that time, we just lived a simple life. Like we, had the necessities, but nothing more. So, and I was never taught much about managing my finances or investing. So I sort of learned that the hard way in my adult years. I mismanaged my funds, had student loans, bad credit. And really the only way for me to get out of this mess was to experience it and go through it. So I guess you can say that's like a school of hard knocks um, for me to understand through the process. Uh, when I finished school, I'd taken sales jobs pretty much. Um, Anything from direct sales to door-to-door -door sales, um, call center sales. 
whatever it was, just uh, to get the experience of being able to talk to more people, pretty much understanding the sales process, the pitches, and being a very good mirror match to certain people. And so I really enjoy cars. That's one of my big hobbies that I enjoy. And I thought, you know what, why don't I get into the car industry? So I worked at a car dealership for a few years, um, crazy enough. Um, I enjoyed it. It was a really good experience for sure. It, it definitely gives you that hunger mentality because you're pretty much commission-based only. So you know, you're, you're pretty much forced to, to make sales. Otherwise, you don't make any income. And eventually at that point, I saw an opportunity working corporate. So I worked for a company called Auto Trader at their head office in Etobicoke, which is in Ontario. And that time, it was a great job. Pretty stable. Um, I found it very kind of structure-like. So if you're into that, but you know, at the same time, I enjoyed being there. And my wife and I moved to Winnipeg. So uh, crazy. But people are wondering, why would you move to Winnipeg from Toronto, right? So we had an opportunity here. Uh, my wife uh, was able to um, pursue her medical residency. So we came here to, to live here, for to, to have a, a base here. And at that time, I had like a whole opening to like what career path should I take you know now it's like a fresh start right so I was thinking really hard like what would be a good opportunity for me here and one day I was just driving my wife to uh to school and I hear this radio ad you know about uh, a real estate company you know if you were interested in investing and so on and so forth so I, I called in and I did a two-day seminar with them and uh, and you know it led to me getting a coaching package pretty much uh, but this company was based out of the U.S., so they were at that time they were just trying to build their, their market share here in Canada, and you know uh, it was good. Yeah, we had a lot of learning materials. We get to read a lot of that throughout the course of their um, their whole program, and we had three to four coaching sessions, which was really good. I mean, they it gave you some good insights and all that. The big problem with when you join a coaching program that's outside of Canada, um, so this was U.S. based is they don't have really good pulse of the market. So if I spoke to them about um, St. James Street or, you know, if I talked about River Heights, like they had no idea where it was. So I wasn't getting that much coaching from them. And at that point, I was like, you know, I need to find a local coach to really help me out. And, you know, I, I've been going through different coaching academies and I found Nelson Camp. He was my first coach. Uh, he was from Teammate Real Estate. And he helped me get my first deal in 2016. It was a duplex in the West End. And uh, from there, I grew my knowledge in, as a real estate investor and started to acquire different types of real estate. So I find it very important to expand your network and connect with more people. And you never know what type of interactions you can get from, from meeting and um, joining these uh, real estate uh, masterminds. So that's pretty much how I really started, was you know being curious and just giving it like a... I guess you could say all or nothing mentality and I didn't want to fail. So I just kept going. And that's kind of my, my short story. Wow. Wow. It's interesting. You mentioned about coaching, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of coaches out there, some good, some bad, um, some support, some don't, but I think we can all agree that, uh, I, I kind of, and I'm going to probably have a, a, an entire podcast on coaching, but yeah. <laughs> from what I've always kind of looked at it you could learn on your own but coaching seems to collapse time correct right would you agree with that 100 percent. you know i had this really kind of fear mentality like you know it's like the, the analysis process at that point when i was trying to get into real estate i didn't know much 
And at that point, I just kept overthinking everything. When I got a coach with me, it kind of helped me understand, like, okay, you know what? You don't need to know everything all at once. You need to, you know, you need to know enough, but not everything. And as you go through the process, you learn pretty quickly. So, yeah, I, I definitely believe in coaching is a it's a good way to to start your real estate career. If you hadn't had a coach, where do you think? How far along do you think you'd be? Do you think you would have made more mistakes? I definitely would make more mistakes. Um, I could see it because. There's just so many traps into getting into real estate that unless someone tells you ahead of time, it's kind of like you're bound to, to do it. Uh, for example, like yeah, for buy and hold, which is what I started with, you know, like just finding the right tenants. Um, it's a huge benefit to understand like how to search them and how to profile them and make sure that you're doing your due diligence. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, you know, like you think you could do it. It looks very easy. And I'm sure anyone could really find a tenant, but the, the difference between understanding the right process is that now you can vet them properly and, and know that what you have is uh, what type of tenant you have is for that particular property and not just bring anybody in just to fill a gap. So it does help. Um, other ways is like, if you're getting into like flipping like myself, it makes you understand the processes to go, which needs to go first. Does painting go before, you know, uh, flooring or does the kitchen go? There's so many different processes. And if you just do things yourself and <laughs> you would probably, uh, make a few mistakes uh, by just not knowing um, which which order to go with. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So um, tell us about the operation. What does it look like today? Yeah, for sure. Um, for, for me, I've actually um, shifted to flips, uh, which is the buy, uh, uh, renovate and sell uh, strategy because, you know, during the last two years, I would say, uh, so pandemic time, there was a, a shortage of, of um, houses for sale. And I thought that the opportunity would be to start um, getting into more aggressive into flipping. Um, although I, I do have rentals as well, but you know, with real estate, what's great about it is, is you're able to move different directions, just depending on what the current market is, is asking for. And at that time, flipping is definitely my, uh, my go-to. And then now, um, Considering the rates have been going up pretty high, I decided to kind of take a halt on my flipping and go back to the buy and hold strategy or the burst strategy, which is sort of, for me, I think would be the safer bet during this time that there will be a lot of people looking for rent um, due to some people just can't afford to buy a house at the moment. So my strategy is pretty much on the buy and hold side. Current current day to the operations is I'm just pretty much managing and operating right now, um, all my rentals. I was just at my apartment building yesterday fixing uh, <laughs> a little leak there in the shower. And, you know, sometimes it does get tiring. Um, I am owner-operated. I'm not big enough to to have a, a full-time property management to watch my stuff, but I do see that in the future. But as of my day-to-day, I'm just pretty much overlooking the business, uh, making sure that my books are good and that um, all my tenants are happy. And if I was doing any flipping projects is that uh, I oversee all the project management side of it and making sure all my trades are doing their work. But otherwise, it's a pretty open day. Uh, pretty much anything really happens when you're a full-time investor. Awesome. So I, I just heard you say you went to an apartment block to take a look at something. Did you fix it yourself or is that just kind of taking a look so that you can get a contractor in there? It is a little bit further out. Um, it's about 40 minutes from the, away from the city. So I did bring one of my maintenance guys with me just to save time. And when I did, we definitely was able to fix the issue right away. Um, 
So it was more of just condensation. With the cold water and, and during the summertime, it was hot, so the water was dripping. So we just put some insulation in there and just keep an eye on it, but it should be fine. Hmm. Okay. So it's interesting because anybody who's listening that's in real estate um, who's experienced knows that it's smart to diversify, right? And that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, market's hot. Okay, let's flip. Interest rates right now, at least, you know, we're October 2022. Interest rates seem to be going up almost on a weekly basis. Interest rates go up. Uh, people can't afford mortgages, which means they're not going to be buying houses, which means there's more people that are going to be going back to the rental market, which is why you just said you're going back to uh, your buying holds. But I'm really interested in the context of learning and for our audience, just about flipping, you know, uh, maybe break down flipping in the simplest components for us. For sure. So it really, for me, like what got me to getting into flips was really building up more cash reserves. So with flipping, it's active income. So you definitely can see the cash faster as long as you're making profit, of course, and then reinvesting that into long-term assets like multifamily rentals. But typically the way I look at my flips is, you know, we obviously look for distressed um, properties. For me, I choose single family and I prefer bungalows. Um, that's one of the things that I like to invest in is just a two or three bedroom and one and a half, two bathrooms usually is what I find. I, I get it through like private deals or maybe my online marketing. And I usually purchase these between 50 to 60 cents on the dollar. So, you know, it's one thing that's so important with buying flips is, you know, you need to understand, you know, your ARVs as pretty much as is and as finished so that, you know, you have a better understanding, you know, how to take this particular property and the type of renovation to do. And typically my renovations take between three to six months uh, from start to finish. So just pretty much in a nutshell. So is there any project you won't take on uh, following that 50 to 60 cent? I mean, where do you draw that line? Foundations, you know, things like that. So I've, you know, this is probably going to be a question you're going to ask later, but you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I made into flipping was really not understanding completely the area that I'm doing the flips. I think it's super important that uh, you need to know the pulse of that market, whether you're going to do flips in North End or you're going to do it in the South End or whatever it is you decide. You really need to understand that uh, the, the way that the flip should be done is dictated to the area that you're going to sell it at. So you're talking about the level of renovations? Correct, yes. And also, um, when you know what? I kind of prefer a more simpler flip at the moment. Like as I kind of grew into this um, flipping strategy, I am taking more challenging projects like add-ons, like a secondary suite. But for me, I find the sweetest type of flip is something just really simple that you can do a lot of value add to it. And, you know, you don't need, it's not really rocket science. It's just more of like just understanding your numbers and, you know, knowing what it costs you to, to, to get this renovation, what the cost for labor, the cost of material, and, and having good contractors that will really meet their deadline. But at the end of the day, like, I just keep it really simple when it comes to flips. I, I try not to um, take on a really hard project because for me, I'm more about just consistently pr producing um, same quality of products, and I want it to be done in a fast manner, and I don't want it to be held for 6 to 12 months when I can do 2 to 3 flips. Uh, within that time frame. So, you know, it's it's more just hitting more base hits than always a home run. That's how I look at it. Okay. So the slow uh, slow dime 
slow nickel versus versus the fast dime, as, as they say. Yeah. So in terms of, um, you could say, simple flips, we're just talking, what, paint and carpet and flooring? What about kitchens and bathrooms? Yeah, for sure. Or is that like an automatic in a flip? Yeah, for me, I, when I look at a flip, I, I definitely do need to um, consider replacing the bathroom and kitchen. I think those are the two um, most valuable areas to get the best dollar for for your for your um, renovation it's just that sometimes just depending on the type of flip that you do i just find it that you you can keep a certain design aspect to your flips to give you a little bit of a signature in the in real estate market so they know like this is the type of flip that you that you do so i typically keep the same colors i don't change it up a lot unless you know, it's something that needs to change. Otherwise, I keep it the same. It's also cheaper for me when I buy the materials and everything. Um, but typically, flooring, painting, bathroom, kitchen, a lot of times the mechanical side, I try to keep it newer as well. Um, if it's too old, I replace it. And exterior, if it can be power washed, great. If not, we just pretty much get it repainted. And uh, if there's any stuff we're working out, all that stuff, we can redo that again and make the house look way more updated. But at the end of the day, we just want to make the house shine again and come out from its few years of a distressed look and, and make it very livable for somebody. And we keep, we keep our properties um, pretty clean and we, we take pride of what we do. So we make sure that we, you know, we change what we need to change and we don't take shortcuts. We, we really want to give the best product. Yeah. I think um, that's interesting about the shortcut thing. I mean, we all hear horror stories um, and know of people in the industry who try to take those shortcuts, what would you say is the risk of that? How can it come back and, and uh, bite them? So, you know, I think the biggest thing is, and I, and I talk to other investor friends of mine that, you know, we have different flipping strategies. I'm not saying that doing my way is the best way, um, but I just know deep down inside that I have a, I put out a good product and I'm not worried to get something coming back to me and saying, oh, well, you guys, didn't do it properly, but taking shortcuts can hurt you in the long term. What I mean by that is that even if the owner, the new owner takes possession of the property and you know they find out that you know you didn't pull a permit on this in this work and then things start going crazy in the basement and water is draining and everything, and you know, technically title insurance can come after you and pay for those damages, even after the fact someone has purchased it. So it's just a big like peace of mind that. You do what you have to do, and you know that if something does arise, and it, you know sometimes it will, then you take ownership to it. But knowing that you're doing everything for the best interest for yourself and the new owners, it's it's an easier way to do business, and you're not going to be like trying to worry about things catching up to you down the road. Yeah, hundred um, percent. As you know, I'm I'm doing some flips too, and a lot of my flips are purpose built. They're done to flip quality, but I I place a tenant in them and I sell them to my current clients in my property management company. And that's very long-term, right? I mean, that's not just a, a random owner that comes after you later. This is like a maintenance item that I could have fixed. And if I choose not to, it's going to come back and bite me later because the person's going to go, well, you sold me this house. How come this wasn't fixed at the beginning? So I a hundred percent agree with you. You just do it right. Try to be a good person about it and everything. Even if you have to take a, a little bit of a loss on your profit, um, it all evens out in the end, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. From my, my experience with flipping, you know, if you keep a good quality product, it also gives you recognition in the market when people buy your, your properties. They're like, oh, you know, this is the company that made this. And 
over time, that hard work pays off. Like people will now put a brand to you and look at you differently because they know that you're you're putting the best foot forward and not trying just to to always look for a bigger profit at the end. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we want to make profit 100%, but I want to do it in a way that I know that I'm not trying to screw someone in the back. Yeah, for sure. And then let's let's uh, move on to now the project is done. What's your thoughts on things like time of year to sell, staging, best best practices to get something sold? How do you how do you um, position your your assets that way? Yeah, for sure. That's a very good question. I usually like to. Um, obviously, I would definitely advise to stage uh, your flip if you are going to flip. I think it just gives a different ambience to the place when you know people can see what it could look like with furniture. But another thing that will flip will allow you to do is, you know, it gives you that pride, like for you to show your your stuff to the world. You can use that as your marketing as well. But the big thing that I find is I set up my uh, marketing sooner before my realtors actually start selling only because, you know, I also have a market of investors. I have a market of friends. Um, that are in my area that know that this is what I do for a living. So I, I definitely try to put it out there and give like sneak peeks just to show them the interest. Like, Hey, you know, we're working on this. This is what's going on right now. Um, you know, stay, stay tuned. And it helps kind of give out a little bit of, um, you know, extra marketing before the realtors start doing their thing and not all the time. Um, and it's so important to find a good realtor that's very active in social media, because that's what most people are going to look at these days is social media or, you know, MLS is big. Um, I sell my properties on MLS. I, you know, I've tried selling privately before, which worked well too, but I just find that like, I'd rather move on to the next project than like be the one to do most of the work. And if you have a good relationship with your realtor and they know how you work and how, how things that they do, um, make it important for you to choose them because they're 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 that expert per se for 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 selling houses then the relationship is good and they can pretty much do it on their own without you being there um but really staging it getting getting like getting the marketing in place the sooner the better so you can get more people interested in it um once it's there start blasting it off too like even though realtors are doing their work you should be out there doing it and helping them and people say why why because you know, you're paying them for all this cash. Well, at the end of the day, the bottom line still goes to you and any help possible to, to, to sell the property. It's always the best way. I find that, um, there's no such thing as like not enough marketing, right? So we could, we could definitely use that. Um, lastly, I say probably about try to get maybe, um, open house once a week for the first few weeks for sure. So at least a Saturday or a Sunday, I think people prefer Sunday more than Saturdays. And the reason why is people are more at home on Sundays and uh, it's family days. So once they kind of go home from like, whether they went to the mall or from church or whatever, they say, Hey, you know, let's, let's go out and, and, and look at, look at houses. But really at the end of the day, it's just keeping it consistent, maybe having a list of things and, and jotting them down to make sure that you're really meeting um, those, um, those ways of getting your property sold. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's also dictating the market, right? So the time of year is also very important. I mean, if I was to sell a property now, I probably wouldn't be very optimistic about it um, considering it's November and then December is coming up. Although there's still a market for people buying, but it just gets very less 
And at this time of year, it's it's kind of like the end of the cycle. So I would prefer to sell it probably around springtime and summer. It's probably my strongest points. But you can sell it all year round. It's just that for me, if I was to choose uh, beginning of spring would be my, my goal. Um, that would be around June would be a good time, May, June. Uh, then from there on, but try not to sell it past uh, October if, if possible. So that's interesting because sometimes we can't dictate these things, right? Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands-off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital? Or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. Let's say that you had some kind of delay, right? Or you you just had a property that you just couldn't say no, right? Just too good of a deal. So now you're you're getting it ready. And all of a sudden, it's, it's ready in December 15th. Would you hold it and pay those holding costs to make sure that you take care of the spring market? Or would you try to sell it? Like, where, where's the cost benefit there? Uh, good. That's a very, very good question. I actually just went through that uh, situation on one of my flips uh, in River Heights. Um, it was ready around January and I held it till spring. You did. Okay. And, yeah. And I, I'm so glad I made that decision. You know, sometimes it's, you know, you could obviously test the market. And the way I say by testing the market is like maybe before it goes on MLS, you know, you could possibly have it listed um, on privately or put it somewhere else uh, just to see if people are actually like, put it on your social media and see if there's people biting. But, you know, for me, I, I if you're that close, you're in, already in December, January, and you know that in springtime, or at least you can, by, by your comps and by, <laughs> by the faith of, of your numbers, that you know that by, by March, April, it's going to be this amount. And if your numbers can still keep going till that, I would wait till selling until spring. Now, some people are like, that's crazy. You know, why would you spend that much money? But it depends on the flip. Like on my flip there, it's, uh, it's a high end flip. You know, I bought it for 320,000. I put 170,000 in there and then. And January was ready, and I said, man, I don't think anyone's buying. In January, everyone's broke from Christmas. So I really just kept the two months of holding costs, put it up, and I believe we put it up in uh, so, so three months holding costs, and it was it sold for six hundred. So it was a it was a good it was a good profit, yeah, and worth the wait. So definitely worth it, yeah. But that's not going to happen all the time. 
<laughs> no, uh, and I mean, there's no crystal ball, but I, I mean, it's it's the experience that you have that's uh, that's really coming in for that, right? I was going to ask. Um, this is uh, just taking a little bit of a side question here. ARVs after renovated value so important when you're evaluating flips. Um, where do you, like are you doing this on your own? Are you getting some realtors? Are you getting more than one opinion? How are you working that? Yeah, um, good question there too. Uh, what I do with the uh, after repair value is I get three. It's kind of weird, but I get three people to give it to me because I think the more numbers I get, the easier for me to to be sure about this. Uh, I get my realtor to give it to me for sure. Um, I get my appraiser. So I, sometimes I even pay $300 just to get it appraised on my own, just so I know what it's, what they think it's worth before I sell it. Um, so that it gives me a better idea. Like, okay, well, if he thinks it's around this much, I think I can push it a little bit. But, and the third one would be on my own. So my own research, um, there's a website I go to uh, that I check um, what are the current values for these um, houses. Um, and I find it pretty accurate. And with those three um, repairables, I'm, I'm pretty sure, pretty close to, to what I think would be the after repair value. So, but that's as you're deciding the selling price, right? Yeah. Like uh, what I'm talking about is pre-purchase. You've got something tied up in, in due diligence. You have to decide based on your estimates, right? Because you're not, you're not getting actual quotes or some people are able to tie it up to get actual quotes. But I'm assuming, like most people, you're getting an estimate based on your experience of what you think it's going to cost based on no hidden things and building in contingencies. But that number that you're, you know, that ARV that nobody really knows that could be in six or six or seven months, where are you getting that number from? Because that's the buying decision, right? Yeah, true. And that's... Like pretty much a big hurdle for most of us is getting through that. I, you know, for me, I, I look at two things when it comes to that. I definitely ask my realtors for comparables, um, and the second thing is I have to do my own due diligence and I look into what I think it's worth. And when I say that, is like I'll call um, wholesalers or I'll call you know people that I know that invested in that area and say, hey, like how much did you purchase this for? And you know, give me an idea. Like you know, that way at that point you now have a little bit of better ballpark for what it should be worth. Now, realtors, unfortunately, they, you know, they're pretty vague with their search, although you can definitely tighten it, but it's not to the very T. So at this point, you're just trusting your own decision-making at the end of the day and, and, and how you put forth with this number. But you got to have faith and you need to know the area. That's why it's so important. Like I told you earlier in this call, like having the pulse in the market, not, like if, if I was just only focusing on, you know, um, high-end areas like St. Vitale, St. Benefice, um, Tuxedo, um, you know, River Heights, Crestonwood. And then I go into North End all of a sudden. And then I'm like, oh, well, you know, if I'm not a master of that area, if I'm not very familiar with it, it's going to be tricky to to actually come up with that number and see, am I actually making the right decision to buying it at this price? Uh, and people will say, well, you can just look at it as like, you know, look, look at the past sales within the last year. Or someone could tell me like, now the neighbor just sold for this much. I keep it very conservative. I obviously try to get it within the 50 to 6, 50, 60 cents on the dollar of what I think the ARV would be. And then that's the number I'm going to play with. If it goes way more and it's too tight, I just let it go. It's not worth it for me to, to make. Um, like, and time is money, right? So if you're going to spend three months on it and you're only going to make you know X amount of dollars and that's kind of like 
tight. And depending on what the market will be like six, seven months down the road, it's not worth it. Um, so it's really just a little bit of forecasting and just kind of knowing your numbers. Yeah, agree a hundred percent. Again, you know, I think a lot of people make mistakes. They don't factor in their time. Um, they just look at the numbers. They don't factor in either. Well, I mean, the worst ones I've seen is they don't factor in their time and they're actually trying to do the work themselves. I've seen a few few people that have made mistakes that way. And not only are they now coming up against, you know, by the time you, you put 100, 200 hours into a project, when you're swinging the hammer, they're probably making minimum wage. Um, not to mention, it's probably taking them double the amount of time compared to hiring a pro. Um, so yeah, that, that time factor, very important. Um, you mentioned some mistakes and things. What are some mistakes that you've experienced flipping or that you see other people in the industry making? Yeah, definitely. I, the biggest mistake that I've experienced and I do see people like for the first time flippers, um, is kind of going over budget. Um, that's a, a big one It's just not really knowing the cost of material and labor and, and just kind of like going with the flow and not having a scope of plan, a scope of work to to look at like what needs to be done. And you know, it's it's pretty clear that like painting is painting, but some people don't see it as that. Like someone can quote you five thousand dollars on the same paint job, another guy could do for thirty five, and it's it's just really like the same per like it's gonna look the same no matter who does it, but who does it within a fifty dollar because it's a contractor or doing it at a twenty five thirty dollar because it's, you know. This is somebody that you, you you trust that can do pretty much the same work. So you just it's so easy to kind of like have everybody do the work for you, but it's so important that you kind of know really what is the amount. Um, the, I guess the differences of it, you know. So if it's if it's work to be done, and you know that it's a kitchen is going to be worth about eight to twelve thousand, and and you're getting quotes for twenty thousand, and you think that's kind of like okay price, and you go with it. And you're not really going around and getting and getting calls uh, from other people. It's just going to cost you a lot at the end, and that's where the profit goes. It's, it's just not mismanaging your, your budget. The second thing would probably be just hiring the contractors, finding the ones that really um, will follow your scope of work and meeting the deadline. And that's the thing. It's like, how do you find the right contractor? Right? Like, and you're going to go through this conversation down the road too in your podcast. But for me, it's like you need to have someone that you either worked with before or if you haven't worked, trust someone that comes from a, a reliable source that they've worked with them to try them out. And not saying that they're not going to make mistakes. It's just that if someone's already recommended them to you, usually if that person is uh, you know, somebody that's uh, credible, they won't probably just give you anybody because it's also their name that's going to get hurt at the end of the day if you, something goes wrong with the project. So those are the two main ones is just kind of like over budgeting and just choosing the right contractors would be like the main issues uh, most people will go through um, starting starting the flipping business. Yeah, for sure. I know that um, a lot of contractors out there and price is not the most important thing. Sometimes somebody will come in low uh, trying to get the job and then they're just tacking it in with some of their other ones and all of a sudden you're you know, way over the time budget, right? Uh, not not the budget itself. And that's still holding costs and extra money. I experienced that too, where, you know, I did find someone like a little bit cheaper and then someone who's, you know, super efficient, but his price is like up there. And you have to say like, well, this, this project, I have a deadline of three months. So if you know that, and if this person that you know can get it within that time frame and his work is good, 
and you're paying a little bit more, but you know that, you know, it's within that frame of time, then I would do it because, you know, if you miss that boat of selling it from that month that I told you earlier, that can make a difference of tens of thousands uh, depending on the situation. But if you get the right people do it within the right time frame and get it to the market right away, it's more beneficial for you because you have more time uh, to sell the house. Yeah, or missing that ultimate window, right? May, June, July. Yeah. So, so if you take your the latest flip you've done and compare it to their very first one, how would you say, obviously it's going to look a little bit different. You've learned a lot, but what are those lessons that you can impart upon our audience? Uh, difference now, I'm more open to trying challenging projects that require a little bit more expertise. Like I said earlier, like the secondary suite add-ons and stuff like that. Compared to my first flip where I just wanted like lipstick work, uh, meaning that just keeping the original layout and making it look better. I mean, lessons I've learned is just you got to pivot during, you know, market conditions. If the market is tough, um, you have to stick through it at the end and assess your situation on what would be the best financial decision to make at that point. That's why I like real estate so much. Um, there are multiple extra strategies to choose from. So, you know, just learning. You're going to learn more as you go. That's just the typical nature of things. But you just, I just learned to take on more challenges um, slowly just to, to see how far that I'm willing to go. But from the first flip, it was just more of just, you know, keeping it simple. And when once you have, like for me, preferably, if you're doing a flip, like I said earlier, just look for like a bungalow, 800,000 square feet, three-bedroom, two-bath. Keep it really simple. Just get the basics in there. And once you've learned to like do that and you, you've done it a few times and then move on to the other ones, you'll be okay. I mean, you know, no one said, and even if I had a bungalow for that price, uh, at that size, it's still profitable because at the end of the day, you're, you're still able to do your research on how much money you're going to make. It's just a matter of how, how soon can you get it done. Okay. So if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who, who's listening right now, who's always wanted to flip, what would that be? Okay. For first-time flippers, I would recommend to look for a joint venture partner uh, who has experience and a proven track record. I think that's, you can learn a lot from their mistakes. And at the same time, you still make a decent profit. It's a win-win. Once you're comfortable to do it on your own, you know, you're, you're prepared more to, to handle certain situations a lot better. So I definitely find it um, good, good if you can find someone who's already done it a few times and kind of can walk through you the process, walk through the process with you uh, on your on your first flip. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Okay, great stuff. Let's uh, let's transition to you um, as a person. Um, as you said in your bio, and anybody can see on social media, you've done a lot in your life, and you continue to do some really interesting things. So I have to ask, what's the craziest thing you've ever done before in terms of life experience, your niche, your framework? Wow. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that question. You know what? The craziest thing I think I've done so far was really, which benefited me a lot, I think is moving here to Winnipeg. I, a lot of times I keep wanting to go back to Ontario and, and see what opportunities will be there for me. But I'm just glad I, I stayed here. Uh, it really opened up a lot of doors for me. It made me see myself in a different manner that, you know, it, it gives me more confidence to know that like I have a good network of friends here like yourself and I have a good investor network to, to rely on if I need any help. And it's just really a community. And, you know, the craziest thing is moving in a, 
minus 40 weather uh, city, but the benefit of it is that, you know, you have, uh, you have, you have more, more opportunity um, to make mistakes here and learn from it quicker. And it's not going to cost you a lot of money to, to start something here. And I think that was a, that was a good uh, move for us to stay here. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm asking uh, some other questions. Because it's my podcast, and I can. <laughs> but uh, no, so let, let's talk. Let's expand on those experiences. Name an experience in your life that's shifted your thinking, like more to a positive way. Well, I had a lot of limiting beliefs growing up. Uh, my parents um, got divorced when I was fifteen, and uh, had a lot of kind of hate and blame uh, growing up, and uh, it resulted from I feel like at that time I was just making excuses. Um, and what really changed me and helped me was really going through some personal development. So I've joined a few personal development groups, um, but the biggest one that helped me a lot is when I started doing Tony Robbins. Um, Tony Robbins was doing a few, um, he had something called the Unleash the Power Within, UPW. And at that time it was done, I believe in New York. And then I went there and it was just kind of a good experience to, to be able to expand your mind a little bit and, and know what are your limiting beliefs and how you can overcome it. And at that time, I had so much stuff in my head that like just need to be answered and it helped me like understand it better. Like, okay, well, this is what my parents reframed in my head. Like, this is what they told me. And, and I thought about it and I said, you know what? I could change my physiology. I can change the way that I think. Um, and this is where like, I started reading a lot more books. And when I started reading, it just made me realize like, it doesn't matter what the past is, it's what you do in the future. And a lot of times we tend to forget like, all the stuff we grew up with is just what our family tells us or, or you know, our parents tells us. But if you look into yourself deeper and you find like, a bigger why and understand that like, no matter what, it, you're responsible and accountable for everything you do in life, then it's your, it's, it's your duty to, to, to pretty much find ways to get out of whatever rut you're in and make it better because no one else is going to help you and no one else is going to say, oh, well, it will help you, but not to that extent. And and at the end of the day, if you're not willing to help yourself, no one else will be willing to help you. So going through Tony Robbins, uh, it really helped me. And I actually started doing crewing for him where I was part of his team. And I was recently invited two days ago to be going to um, to Florida to, to be one of his... Um, um, team members there to uh, to organize the event and you know i think it's just bringing yourself out there um, a mindset is always a big thing that we we tend to we work on and and going through these uh, programs really to help that's kind of how i got through certain things in life and it's helping me get through now and every day i just like to be around like-minded people that allows me to grow and also allows me to like be around people that are, are either better than me or smarter than me so i can get to that level as well so, yeah. Well, I think you've proven yourself to be quite at that level. And it's, it's obvious through a lot of self-learning and uh, self-awareness. Um, what are some of the things you look for in a good entrepreneur or even the red flags that make a person a bad entrepreneur? That's a very, uh, that's a very good question here. I think a good entre- entrepreneur always looks for a win-win situation. Somebody that, you know, values relationship more than money. And what I say that is, is that we obviously need to make money to be profitable. But if you're in a real estate business, especially like what we're in right now, 
if you're just in it for the money, you probably won't last very long because there's like there's times where you're, you know, it's not always going to be always making money. There's going to be times where you're going to end up losing money or just times that you're going to be in need of money and you're done. But if you're in it to build relationship, you're able to withstand certain situations because, you know, you're looking for it as a long-term growth, a long-term, meaning that if, if, if I had contractors with me that I knew that were very loyal and do the right work, and obviously I could pay them less because that's what they think they're worth. But if I know that this is somebody that I can build longer relationships with down the road, it's the right thing for me to say like, you know what, you guys did a great job. You met the deadline. Here's a little bonus for that to keep them happy. And at the same time, they know that you respect their value them. And this is what I always say is even in joint venture, you know, agreements where you're, you're going through like a hardship in one property because it wasn't selling. Right. And you're the managing partner. And it eventually does sell, but you guys are just pretty much break even or whatsoever. But I appreciate that person trusting in me that they wanted me to succeed by lending me the money to, to be able to do a flip or whatever it would be. Then at the end of the day, I would say, look, I'll take the hit because it was my responsibility to make this deal go through and make profit. And because it didn't, you know, this is just my way of saying here, here's your money back plus a little bit more for your time. And if I had to take a loss on that, at least I know that deep down inside the person that I that trusted in me can say, well, you know what, Mark's a great guy. Because he actually looked into it more of just, just a money relationship, but building a relationship for future deals. And who knows, like, I don't burn bridges as much because I know that whoever it is that you talk to, even if you have a bad experience with them, you might need them in the future <laughs> for the weirdest thing. And you just got to keep it civil. But at the end of the day, you're accountable for your actions. And for me, the way I look at it is an entrepreneur should always look at it as relationships are more important. If you put that first, you'll be able to expand your business better. You can grow your team better. And at the end, your profit will still be there. I mean, I'm not saying that money is going to be lost because you're making, oh, you're, he's too much of a nice guy. He's just giving money away. It's not about that. I, I believe that, you know, that when you want to keep people happy, you have to also spread the wealth around. And if your friends are winning, you're winning. Or if your people that are in your trusted circle are winning, then I feel like I'm winning too. So I value relationships at the end more than just making money because I know down the road, if I wanted to continue this business in real estate, that it's important to have the right people um, in your team to make it succeed. And you know, if you're burning bridges everywhere you go because you know you're too tight on your budget on cash or Whatever it is that you, you you're doing and it's ruining relationships around you, most likely you're not gonna you're not gonna go far because this is a relationship building business as well. And the more the people around you are profitable and everyone gets to go home and feed their families, it it's it's a good feeling that you're also responsible for that and to be able to have people around you that you know will have your back when you need them. So in my case, a good entrepreneur should understand. That you know, it's looking for people that have good talent, and 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 recognizing that, and keeping them loyal to you by offering them things to understand that like I appreciate you being with me throughout this time, and they're just going to be there for you. So I feel like that's my experience so far with with dealing with uh, certain situations so of being an entrepreneur is just keeping long-lasting relationships with everybody and doing your best to make it a win-win situation. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, before I let you go, um, I ask every guest this question and I'd like to hear what you have to say. 
This is the Win Podcast. How do you define success and what does winning look like for you? I define success as being able to do what you enjoy and make a good living out of it. For me, you're winning when everyone around you important to you is winning as well. So I'll keep it simple. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's too true. It's so true. I mean, money isn't everything, and and those who chase it quickly find that the most important things in their life might be gone. And uh, yeah, I, I really love your your part about win win. You know, I think that's uh, that's a motto I live by. And relationships are more important uh, in the long term because otherwise you're going to find yourself without uh, with left with nothing at the end. I agree. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you, Mark, for uh, hanging out with me here and spending some time. I'm sure our audience will love listening to this later. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. And Garrett, uh, more success to you, my friend. You're doing great things. And I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing more people in your podcast in the near future. All right. Thanks, Mark. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to Win is not only about helping you to win more, but WIN actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, The link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.